Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, we continue our series on looking at startups as a lens to learn about the road ahead for public investors. I talked to Matt Heider, CEO of Nautilus Labs, a company that's using software to disrupt the century-old shipping business. Matt and I get into the ins and outs of the state of global shipping, why many ships are still using technology from the Victorian era, and how IoT and AI can enhance fleet performance, reduce fuel consumption, and ultimately grow sales. Uh, Matt, we follow a lot of SaaS companies at Arc, and they all have to do with mostly software and DevOps and maybe team chat and things like that. But you know, one way to think about the software as a service space is you have these horizontal SaaS companies and you have these vertical SaaS companies. It seems like you guys at Nautilus Labs occupy in the vertical space. How do you think of yourself as a company? Do you view yourself as a software SaaS company? And where do you put yourself on this map or, or this kind of taxonomy? So it's a thoughtful question. And, you know, when we think about the business that we're building and what we are long term is a technology provider. And so today, to your question, what we do provide is a SaaS platform that's accessible to the folks who own and operate ships. And that's the vertical that we're clearly focused on. As that extends out into the future, there are other ways that we can extend the technology that we're delivering. And it could be components that consist of hardware or sensors or uh, professional services even. But At our core, we're a technology provider building a SaaS platform, providing it for the maritime shipping industry. All right. You deploy in the cloud and you you build uh, via subscriptions? We do. Okay. Well, there you go. You check all the boxes. What's the founding story? How did you come up with this concept? It's a great question. When you look at maritime shipping, the thing that rallied us all around the challenge at the start was a few things. So the first is the magnitude of maritime shipping. It impacts everybody every day everyone that you've ever cared about is touched by shipping in some way. It's oftentimes out of sight, out of mind because it's not accessible to most people. So when you look at your piece of paper or your microphone or your laptop to describe three things in this room, they've all in some form or another been impacted by shipping, whether it was the timber that made up the paper or the finished product that was the microphone. They were in somehow, some way impacted by global maritime trade. At the same time, because shipping's so far out of sight and out of mind, it's been really loosely regulated through the course of history. That has led to an environment where there is a lot of fuel waste, and that fuel waste has a dramatic impact on the environment. For us, when we came together and started the business and started to focus on the problem, though, the biggest thing as technologists was really that last point, which is the dearth of technology that exists in the industry. So today, when you look at maritime shipping, it's largely driven by pen and paper and maybe a spreadsheet and not by advanced analytics. And so, you know, back two, three years ago, 
looking at the challenge, it was simple for us. It was A, this is a massive industry that has an impact on the entire world by virtue of its scale. B, that impact is also a lot of times harmful because of the environmental component of what the industry does and how it operates. And from a technology perspective, if we just leverage advanced tools, build a SaaS platform, leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence, we can have a massive impact on it that both changes the dynamics of global trade and also the dynamics of climate change. And so that's really what rallied us around is to start. How did you personally get interested in shipping? I mean, I'm sure you had many ideas floating around. What made you pursue this path as opposed to any other? So for me, five, six, seven years ago, I was working at IBM. And you know, IBM is a historic business and one that has changed the world and was involved with putting the first person on the moon and, and all these really vastly impressive things. That said, as a person working there day in, day out, early on in my career, it was really hard to identify with the outcomes of what we were doing every day. You know, the outcomes were a higher EPS by a few cents for our shareholders, or hopefully turning the needle on some massive dial for a big corporate client. But there was no real connection to a mission or a broader outcome from the business. When I made my first foray into startups, came to New York, was involved with a startup by the name of Indela. That's gone on to raise $175 million, really done quite a bit in terms of building a very effective services platform and one that has really dramatic change, driven a dramatic change, the world in terms of recruiting developers in Africa, getting them opportunities to be software engineers on teams around the world, and change the way people think about African-based talent. After a couple of years there, um, began to think through the next five years of my life, next 10 years of my life, and where in the world can we have a massive impact and build a competitive business and build a quick-growing venture-backed startup? And that's essentially during that exploration is when I got connected with Founders Nautilus. And we thought through the challenge that existed in Maritime and the type of solutions that could potentially come to market and began to bring to bear some resources and some talent on actually solving that problem. Okay, interesting. There are many problems in shipping that I think can be optimized with software. Was optimizing fuel consumption uh, the first thing you guys went after? Was that after kind of an exploration of the product puzzle? How did you decide this was going to be the core of your product? And what is the value proposition of this product for listeners who probably don't know much about it? Great question. So take the first part first and kind of answer that, and then, and then we can get into the, the core value prop. The challenge in maritime shipping is fuel consumption. It is a majority of the expense on voyages for shipping companies. It is a $100 to $200 billion challenge for the industry this year, and it will likely go up 50 to 100% That's next year. spend of, of fuel. Correct. So it's absolutely massive. And so from the very beginning, the focus of the business was on how do we drive down that fuel consumption? I think what's really evolved in a very interesting way is the path we've taken to get to fuel optimization. When we first started, we we were looking at the way ships operate today. And the question was, well, could there be autonomous ships? Why would we have people making these decisions on board a vessel when potentially a computer could do it better? When you dig into the way that the businesses actually work, it's really the fundamental underlying reliance upon noon data, manually collected information that has given us the opportunity to change. We found that at the most base level, the businesses we're operating, our clients are operating 
with a paucity of data to make their decisions and to run and inform their businesses and manage their fleets. And so foundationally, to answer the second part of your question, what we've done is we've built over the course of time capabilities in our platform that add increasing amounts of value. So step one for us was just, can we get data from the vessel and combine it with multiple data sources to help folks have visibility into the way their fleets are performing? Step two was, can we begin to provide some sort of contextualized understanding of that performance with other data sets? So if we can pull in commercial data, fuel costs, weather information, are there ways that we can provide a deeper level of insight and begin to actually set a level of accountability inside these businesses to raise the bar in performance? And now today, what we've been building for the last um, 10, 12 months has really been in the direction of specifically fuel optimization. So are there pieces of decision support that we can provide to our clients that actually on a day-to-day basis drive down fuel consumption and minimize the impact of, of ships on the environment? When I think about optimizing fuel consumption for, for ships, it's not super obvious to me just as a layperson that it's inefficient to begin with. I assume you have a departing port and a destination port and you just I don't know, just drive the right word, drive in a straight line toward the destination. Um, what can you change to decrease fuel consumption or decrease the cost of fuel consumption? Again, taking a step back, right now, today, the industry works. And this is true of every type of analysis done in the industry of all the market conditions of every internal decision that most companies make. It's all driven by the concept of noon reporting. So 200 years ago, before there were electronics on board a ship, the only time you reliably knew what time it was every day was when it was new, when the sun was directly overhead. And so every day in that era, the crew would take a set of readings at noon, and that would be essentially the history of the voyage once they got into port. Here's my log of, of noon reports. You fast forward 200 years, that is still the same data collection methodology that's used to inform most analysis. Point sample of one per day. Correct. Manually collected by a person. So today it's a little more advanced. It might be a person who has access to a digital sensor reading, but it still is essentially like a meter reader going around, looking at a dial, making their best assumption for what a value is over the course of a time period, potentially manually averaging certain values, writing those down on a piece of paper, putting that piece of paper into digital format in email or in a form on board the vessel and sending it back to shore. And so it's once one data point a day, it's manually collected, it's manually interpreted. And then when it's brought back to shore for analysis, if it is analyzed, it's often just done in a spreadsheet. And so it's that fidelity and accuracy of the insight that is ultimately the core of a lot of the inefficiency, a lot of what you can solve with better data. How do you do the integration on the, on the ship side so that you can actually get this data? The way that we approach shipboard integrations is typically one of two ways. So for some subset of ships, think about it as the more modern, more advanced, higher-end vessels on the spectrum, they may already be sending that data back to shore. So this high-frequency IoT data, every ship that's come out of the shipyard nowadays has the sensors that you need, has them connected to core systems on board the vessel, and may well be transmitted back to shore. And so in those scenarios, for us, the integration effort to get the IoT data from the vessel is really just as simple as a software integration. So file transfer, API, so forth. On the other set of vessels, those that are older, less sophisticated, less advanced by nature of their trade, you know, a ship that transits dry bulk commodities like steel, iron ore, 
far less sophisticated than a ship that transits LNG or LPG gas. On those vessels, what it requires is the installation of a small computer, typically in the bridge up, uh, you know, in the cockpit of a ship, for lack of a better term, or in the ECR, the engine control room, which is where um, down in the, the factory that actually produces the power that runs the ship. And we connect it to a couple core systems that sit aboard the vessel, typically one in the bridge and one down the ECR, that already act as confluence points for all the signals that we wish to collect. In those scenarios, we just install a small computer, gather the signals, compress them, encrypt them, and send them back to shore with whatever frequency our clients desire. Important to note that we then combine it with two other data sets in order to generate these insights. So we take this IoT data, we combine it with third-party information that we source, whether it's AIS information, weather information. AIS is a transponder that exists upon every waterboard vessel that allows them to transmit back via satellite their signal at some frequency. It's less reliable for position data than having a high-frequency IoT signal coming from the ship, but it's more reliable than absolutely nothing. There's some vagaries to how AIS works. For example, you may have seen some reports recently of ships disappearing from the map. The reality is a ship can turn off its AIS transponder and it goes dark from the map. So that's why it's not our core data set, but you can augment other data sets with it in a useful way. And then obviously weather and sea state data is critically important. And then we'll often pull in, time, pull in information like commercial terms for ship, cost of fuel, cost of cargo, depending on the optimization that we're working on. Now, Matt, your product you describe as an artificial intelligence yeah. product that, that helps inform decisions for the captains and, and for these shipping companies. These are basically prediction models, right? These are, are general forms of prediction models. I see your inputs are basically a set of sensor data from the ships and some third-party data. This can be like sort of your you know, general pre-training data, if you will. This is what the model takes in. What does the model output? It's a commercial reality for shipping companies that when they market a vessel on time charter or voyage charter, the price they earn for the ship is correlated to the amount of fuel the ship will burn at a given speed. Going at its full speed, it will consume X metric tons. Therefore, I can charge this much per day for my ship is the basic way to think about it. What you can do and what our, our models first started predicting with most accuracy was quite simply how much will a ship consume given a certain weather condition and a certain draft condition or laden condition Meaning, quite simply, draft is how low a ship sits in the water. And if it's running in ballast, that means it's not full of goods and it's running to pick up cargo. If it's in laden, that means it's laden with cargo um, and is running to drop off its cargo. So what we're able to do with a platform is predict in any weather condition, any draft condition for any ship, how much fuel is it going to consume at a given point in time. When you have this baseline understanding of the ship's performance, its you know, speed and consumption performance, its efficiency, you can then combine that with other data to make even more interesting recommendations about what to do with a ship. So those might be as simple as this is the speed and consumption profile for your vessel and here's what you should price it at in the market. Or as you know, operational in real time and programmatic as these are the constructs commercially that you're operating in. This is the rate you're getting for your ship on a daily basis. This is how much your fuel costs. And this is what your expected performance is over the course of route. You should run at this speed or RPM over the course of that voyage and have that be a dynamic instruction. I see. So at a first level, it, it essentially becomes a pricing engine for your customers. 
there's there's absolutely a component of it that's applied to pricing. Do you guys use any fancy AI for this prediction model? It sounds like it's fairly straightforward. Is the model complexity important or it's, it's mostly about the data sources and, and a pretty simple model? What I've seen in, in, in building the business is over the course of time, it's become more complex. Is it the most advanced form of artificial intelligence known to man? No, it's not today. When we start thinking about the matrix of decisions you have to make about a ship, that's when it gets potentially a lot more complex. If you're thinking about not just current voyage, but next voyage, potential placement of a vessel around a globe, the matrix of maintenance decisions you have to make about a ship, when and where should I have my hull or my propeller or my engine serviced? Where should I bunker my ship? Bunker being by fuels, like how should that tie into my overall fleet management strategy? I think that that neighborhood of fleet optimizations is where it becomes much more complex. But today, as we're building the platform, what we're focused on today, there's a lot of value to be captured just from basic application of machine learning that hasn't been wrought yet. Can you share any specifics on what approach you're using or you're looking to use? I guess if an ML person, a machine learning researcher, or someone in that field is listening, how does that fall into their classifications? So we use a supervised learning model and acknowledging that I'm not a data scientist. So I, I'd hate to, to tread too deeply into waters that I'm not well-versed. But I think you you drew at a high level the correct supposition, which is we have a training model that comes from all these inputs that you've already described. And then we build up vessel-specific machine learning models to help predict consumption for each ship. And that's leading to us having a generalized model that can predict consumption for any ship if we take into account certain pieces of metadata and then apply other ships' metadata to the existing model. At what point does machine learning become an actual discipline for a startup? Like, I think many startups just get built with the kind of core group of engineers to begin with. And then at some point, you hire a machine learning researcher or data scientist or, or someone who works purely from an AI perspective. How does that happen? And where are you guys along that journey? For us, machine learning has been an initiative largely driven by the engineering team over the course of the first two years of the business. And now we're building a full-fledged data science team. So you know, around the time of the Series A was when we really started to make a push towards building out a more discrete approach to d- data science and machine learning as its own application internally, separate from core software engineering of the product. Okay, cool. When you were you talked about getting your Series A. What's been the reception like from venture capitalists when you, both at the seed round and Series A, approached them with this idea? Was it kind of outside of their wheelhouse or did they pretty much understand that you know, this is a large market, doesn't seem very crowded and seem like a good opportunity? So the, the funny thing about the way venture capitalists perceive shipping, and this is a generalized statement about people who are all individuals, so I, I hate to generalize, but I have some generalized insights based on uh, having gone through the process. When you look at shipping, and I would contrast it with really choose any other sector that you guys have diligenced yourselves or have have a point of view on. Most VCs have done some research or exploration into a space before. So it's either a horizontal application where they might have a point of view or have done some level of in- research gathering and information gathering to build up a point of view on a space. Or it's if they are inclined towards vertical investments, it's a vertical that they know well, that they have experience in, they may have placed a bet or maybe waiting to place a bet in the space. What I saw as regards maritime shipping was that it was not that. It was, in many cases, a brand new space. Maybe some folks had seen 
other plays, more like marketplace plays tied to shipping in one context or another, but very few had already built up a thesis, a point of view, or an investment strategy around maritime shipping. And so what it compelled us to do, and I think it will always be a part of- just good old software eating the world? Yeah. Well, that's the story, right? Yeah. I think that's certainly how, how we positioned it. But it really required helping people understand what that meant in shipping. You know, we've talked about it already, but the, just the notion of noon reporting and where the industry is from a data collection analysis perspective today is something that a lot of people, and it's not just VCs, a lot of people struggle to understand or believe that that's actually the case today. Everyone, you know, is used to the concept of an airline and knowing where planes are at all points in time, no matter what. It's really hard to believe that shipping essentially operates with an email when you depart, an email every day, and an email when you arrive. And that's the level of insight that that happens within the space. So for us, I think there was a lot of education required in, in the fundraising process to get people comfortable with the way the industry works, the inefficiencies that exist, and the massive opportunity there is for change based on software. In the end, who really understood the vision? And at what stage is, uh, is Nautilus Labs right now in terms of funding and, and I guess any other metrics you care to share? So in terms of funding, we've raised now a total of $14 million, 14 and a half to be precise. 11 came in during the Series A process, which closed earlier this year. Our lead investor in that round was M12. Uh, and our partner by the name of Matt Goldstein got involved with us, and we're super excited to have him involved in, and on the board. And so that's where we are from a uh, watermark in the, the fundraising life cycle of the business. And getting back to your prior question, I think the excitement that we've seen in the industry about that is massive. You know, this is a, this is a space in all of the tangential components of what maritime shipping is about that requires massive change. There is a tremendous amount of inefficiency. I've gone back and forth with other entrepreneurs about whether it's hundreds of billions of dollars or a trillion dollars worth of inefficiency. When you look at all the points of contact in global commerce, that's water-driven. Everything that happens in ports, the interlinkages between other forms of transport and shipping, all of the paper-based legacy systems, which some startups are out there trying to change even today, the fractured nature of trading of bunkers and commodities and, and all of this. So I think there's been a lot of excitement inside of the industry about what we've been able to accomplish from a fundraising perspective because we're, you know, and we're one of the quicker, more successful startups in history in, in maritime in terms of raising capital and growing. And I think what's what it's helping to do is drive a lot more entrepreneurs into the space. To date, we've had tremendous luck in penetrating what's a global industry. So only 4% of ships are owned in the US. 40% are owned in Europe, 44% are owned in Asia. That makes it... Why are you based in New York then? <laughs> uh, it's lovely about two months of the year. So, you know, it's, it's, it must be April and April and October. No, I think, you know, New York is the historic home of shipping in the US. And it's still a hub of ship finance. Not to mention, you know, next Silicon Valley, the next best source of startup talent and, and venture capital in the world while being proximal to, to Europe. But to your question, what we found from our earliest days is that it incumbent upon us to be able to expand globally and service a global client base. So we've had success building clients in the US, Canada, UK, the EU, and Denmark and, and Greece, Singapore and Hong Kong. So we've had success so far 
and we have a, actually a, a map in, in one of our decks of little Nautilus logos all over the world where we have clients' offices peppered around. And so that's been really, that's been a big component of our success and a big component of our growth going forward. I'd love to know a bit about the shipping market, actually. Who are the largest shipping companies? Like, Are those also the, I guess, in your mind, your largest customers? Um, are they? I'm going to guess they're not American companies. I'm curious, like, who's top five in terms of shipping? Shipping is comprised of, let's call it five different primary segments. It's technically more when you get a little more specific about the underlying commodity, but in terms of ships, you could break the world down like this. Um, you have your dry bulk vessels, which are you know steel, coal, iron ore, bauxite. You have your tankers, which transit petroleum products, crude oil, refined products, other types of chemicals. You have gas carriers, transit LPG, LNG, other forms of gas. You have container ships, which typically transit finished goods, finished commodities that we all interact with every day. And you have row row vessels, which are short for roll on, roll off. And the idea is it's for wheeled cargo. So the most obvious one that everyone can relate to is car carriers, but they also transit larger pieces of equipment, other types of um, non-uniform cargo. When you look at these segments, the largest companies in the world, the ones who own and manage the most ships, all fall into a single segment, and that is container shipping. So Maersk, Hapagloid, Costco in China, NYK, One Ocean Express Network is now managing uh, vessels for multiple owners. These companies all control massive fleets. When you look across other segments, the dry bulk segments, tanker segment, Roro, it's much less consolidated as an industry. So who do you go after? What's your go-to-market? We have spent the majority of our time focusing on the bulk trades because it's twofold. One is more areas of entree, less, you know, overall less sophisticated companies that don't manage as many vessels as, um, say, a big- Oh, you're going after the smaller guys. Smaller than the absolute largest. Just for example, when you think about Maersk line, they manage, I believe it's roughly 800 ships in their business. So a, a vast subset of the container ships that exist in the world. When you look at a large bulk carrier, large tanker company, they might manage 50 to 100 vessels. And so we're focused really in that range of- segment Exactly. And importantly to your question, in those segments that are not specifically container shipping, we've worked with some liner clients, worked with some container clients, but really we think the biggest area of opportunity is in the bulk trades because historically they've been the ships that have had the least investment in technology. Would you say Maersk is, has, is pretty tech savvy or you think if you went in there and implemented your set of technologies, they could still do a lot better? caveating this with with saying that we've had some conversations with Maersk and so I wouldn't I can't speak too much to you know what they've got implemented internally what I would say is this companies of that scale are the ones that have invested the most time and resources in solving some of these legacy challenges and that's how they've become market leaders is by investing in methods to better improve data collection and analysis from the ships and so when you look at an organization like Maersk or that One Ocean Express you see businesses that have had the resources invested to capitalize the most on efficiency improvements across a fleet. There is still a lot of ground to be made up relative to other industries. I think that can expand beyond just talking about software optimizations too, right? There's things that you can do to a ship to improve its performance that don't even require software per se. You can do things like invest in flattener rotor and put an actual sail on board the ship. 
and use that to improve propulsion with wind power. You can look at alternate forms of power altogether, like electric fuel cells, LNG as a fuel source as opposed to traditional fuel oil. There's all sorts of things that these companies are exploring to make it happen. Nobody in the industry feels like they've solved the challenge and that they have the solution to optimize their fleet perfectly. You know, most of our clients are publicly traded businesses. And so anybody who has to report back to shareholders on a quarterly basis about their earnings potential, about the utilization of their fleet, about their cost structure is actively trying to figure out ways to keep their equity markets happy and keep their investors happy. Awesome. Matt, this has been a fascinating discussion. I love learning about new verticals. Thank you for coming on our podcast. It was really my pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. You can find the full ARC analyst team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.